Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Sunday evening, everyone, and welcome to the breeding season episode of GTP Keeper Radio. I'm here with Bill Stagel. Bill, how are you? Good, buddy. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, I guess we'll start the show off with a little bit of sad news. Um, Our longtime friend and fellow condor keeper, Rico Water, lost his battle with cancer over this past weekend. And uh, so we're all kind of taken back by that. And Rico was a tremendous person. And I thought I'd open up the show with a, a little bit about Rico. And so I'll, I'd like to spend a few minutes just to talk about Rico and how maybe we should remember him. We all know Rico was known for his amazing snakes. And he was even better known throughout the reptile hobby for the way he treated others. Rico is the antidote to the world that seems at times cold, cynical, and negative. And when you talk to Rico, he made you feel as though you were the most important person in the world. Despite his numerous successes, he always remained humble. He took the time to listen to both inexperienced and experienced keepers because he believed that everyone was important and that despite their level of experience, all keepers had something to offer to the hobby. So the best way to memorialize Rico Water is for you to become the antidote for all the negatives in our hobby. In short, be like Rico. One of Rico's closest friends has asked us not to remember Rico with tears, but with a smile. So Rico, rest in peace, and I'm smiling as I read this. Well, that's very well said, buddy. There's been, you know, I'd be surprised if uh, most of the listeners on, that, that are listening tonight have not heard of about Rico's uh, passing. Um, you know, when... I've been thinking about it a lot this week, and I've been thinking about Rico a lot. Uh, when you when you lose a person like Rico, you know he's the kind of person that's directly and indirectly affected so many lives. Um, when somebody like that passes, the ripples run a long time, and it's been really nice to see how the Morelia community has responded, uh, both on the MVF and on Facebook. Uh, in response to Rico's legacy. I think that's all 
that he would have wanted us to do to memorialize him. And, and I'm proud of the, the people on and on the MVF, on Facebook. Uh, he's, he's just touched so many lives. Yep, agreed. Um, last year when we were doing ICAST, you know, Rico was was a person who I was bouncing ideas off at the beginning way back when I was even just exploring the option of maybe doing something like ICAST. And Rico helped me with ideas and what he thought would work and what time of the year he thought was best. And um, as the event became reality he he was still involved and um you know at at times when we were in the planning process there were things we were running into and things weren't working the way we wanted them to 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 work and some threads started to unravel and we were kind of being a little bit negative but we stepped back and we're like you know let's really make sure this happens it's really important for rico rico has been such a great supporter of us so so you know having rico inspire us to to charge forward with the the planning and and carrying out icast was it was instrumental and it became an important part for us to really see that the event was a big success so thank you rico it was it was a great success um i was there and you know for a lot of us and including myself that didn't know Rico. I, I met Rico. I did not know Rico. Uh, I was not a, uh, friends with Rico. I obviously knew who he was and what he had done. Um, but so many people, the overwhelming thing that you hear about him is that you felt when you were communicating with him, like you were the only person on the planet. You know, it was him and you. And for all you knew, it was just, he and you, you know, you didn't know he was communicating with hundreds or, or thousands of other people, just like he was communicating with you. And that's, that is very special. Agreed. Agreed. So hopefully we can uh, emulate Rico and, and do our best to be like him with all aspects of the hobby. So. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, I guess, Really, the next thing that um, we wanted to talk about was maybe um, interject a little bit of, of good news uh, on top of uh, the passing of Rico, and that is that a couple of the MVF uh, strong uh, members have entered in holy matrimony in the last week. That's Dr. Barry Manson and, and Laura. Now, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Barry Manson. I'm not sure if, uh, if Laura's taken the last name of Manson, but... Uh, We'll have to maybe he'll uh, send me a text or she'll send me a text. But anyway, you and I both wanted to congratulate uh, Barry and Laura. It looked like they had some kind of beautiful destination wedding on some beach resort that I wasn't invited to. Yeah, not <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not jaded. I'm not jaded about it. So, <laughs> right. Congratulations right. to Barry and Laura. Definitely, definitely, and I'm excited because I haven't haven't seen those two actually in person since I've started this uh trek of nursing school so i'm actually in a couple weekends i have a free weekend and i'm going to go down and see barry and hang out Fantastic. he's going to try to feed me some crab cakes even though i'm allergic he still tries to feed them to me i'm not sure <laughs> if i should be offended by that or or just be in awe of i guess his uh maybe ems skills that i don't know that he that he has hidden yeah. that he can feel he just take care of me if i have a reaction you got to eat your way through uh, that mm-hmm. 
Right. All right. Very good. We'll tell tell the uh, the happy couple I said hi. I definitely will. And uh, Bill, have you seen that uh, Joe Montini hatched out an interesting Condro? Did have I, you seen I the pictures of it? On, well, I saw that on the MVF, and then I immediately saw it on the classified page. What's up with that? Yeah, how about that? I don't know. I don't know. I I'll think tell I you what it is. Opposite. It's because he's. He's got a baby. He's got a baby daughter, and he's figuring out how yeah. how much two women in his lives can cost. True. I will not argue that fact. I would do the opposite. I think I'd sell all the reds and keep that yellow. Yeah, very uh, unique. Uh, I've seen obviously paradox in other uh, in other snake species. I've I've never seen a paradox chondro. Have you seen that before? Um, I haven't seen it as a neonate like that. I have seen uh, neonate chondros that are like a mix of both yellow and red. I have seen that. And there was a paradox chondro that's mentioned in Greg Maxwell's uh, books, the the complete chondro and the more complete chondro. There's actually a picture of that chondro on the header of the MVF. Um, It's the middle, if you look at the MVF banner, It'll be to the left side in the in the middle, far left in the middle, and it's a green condor with like yellow blotches and blue blotches, and that was like the original paradox condor that I was aware of. Um, Interesting. And I think that might have been brought in as a wild caught or a farm bred animal. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. But I don't know if it's well, very... still around. I think uh, maybe Brandon Osborne might have had that at one point. I'm not sure what the what the current status is with that animal. Well, since, uh, buddy, we're, this is going to be kind of a, a prelude or, or a breeding show, why don't you uh, quickly tell the listeners what you've got planned on pairing this year? Right. So I'm going to I'm going to try four chondro pairings. Um, I'm going to wow. try a pure BIOC pairing. Yeah, well, you know, try four, you get one, right? Um, <laughs> or four. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm, uh, knowing how little time I have right now, it'll probably all four will take. So I'll just send you a big box full of unestablished babies to keep you busy. Um, but the So I'm, I'm going to try a uh, Bioc pairing. Um, those animals are both proven, but with different animals. Uh, I've got a, a very large female from a pairing I did in 2009, and she's a calico outcrossed animal, and I'm going to pair her with an unproven male who came from Vita Cernok, so it's it would essentially be this snake's yeah. nephew. So I'm going to try to strengthen up the calico side of that particular line. And then I have two nice. my, two males from the Bushmaster New Blue Project that are going mm. to have an opportunity this year. One's going to a John Leckie uh, female who has trooper, some trooper wash blood and Viamira blood. And then supposedly the New Blue animals are of Jayapura and Arfak descent. And I have a uh, Jaipur female that I'm going to try another male with. So those are my four chondro pairings for the season. How about you, Bill? Uh, I'm going to go half of what you are uh, in the attempted okay. pairings. I'm going to do uh, a 2005 high yellow male named Duara. This is a animal that Keith uh, Hamlin sent me uh, a year ago. It was uh, an animal produced by uh, Eddie Asti. And he's from Trooper's Old Yeller Bred to Anna, which is a, a legendary OS high yellow female. And I'm going to pair that male to a, a high yellow proven Biak female and try nice. to produce some neat babies from that. 
And then my second pairing is going to be a 2007 Marshall Mendez male. Uh, this animal came from my Texas friend, Matt Morris. He's a proven breeder named, I think Matt named him Jager. And he was a melon, he's a melanistic animal. He was a red neo. And he's going to be paired with the Lamina type female that uh, I obtained from Barry. And uh, in nice. addition to that, I've got five or six, five or six carpet females. Uh, I'll be, be uh, breeding this year as well. Good deal. Good deal. I didn't know we were going to talk about other projects. <laughs> I've opened the door, haven't I? Yes, you have. Um, well, well, Bill, it sounds like you're going to have your hands full. What, uh, just out of curiosity, what's your, uh, what's your top non-chondro pairing that you're, that you're going to try this year? Uh, it'll be a carpet pairing. I've, I've got several really nice ones, uh, and, and two in particular I'm really excited about. I've got a pair of 88% uh, diamonds that um, actually were paired last year, and unfortunately the female laid 30 slugs. So oh. I am going to change a couple strategies up and uh, repair them this year. And then my other... Uh, my other kind of flagship pairing will be uh, a male ocelot zebra jag, jaguar that I produced. Uh, he'll, he'll be 18 months old, and I'm going to produce him to a, a very, very nice hairline uh, female pure jungle carpet python. Oh, nice. Very nice. Okay. But sounds well, like you have uh, big aspirations for the 2015 hatching season. Yes. Yes, sir, I do. All right. So, what do you think, Bill? Should we uh, bring uh, Ben on? Let's do it. I'm, I can't wait to hear what Ben has to say. This this is going to be a really, really neat episode. So, let's get him. Okay. So, um, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Benson Morrell from, Morrell from Australian Addiction Reptiles to GT Keeper Radio. Dr. Morrell is well known in the Morelia community as the author of the Reproductive Physiology and Advanced Management section of the Complete Carpet Python book. Ben, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hi, Ben. Not Thanks as happy for coming as we on. are. I'm glad to be on. I'm wearing my ICAST shirt. <laughs> nice. Very appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. So, Ben, let's start off a little bit. You are... Uh, you're an interesting guest to have on on for us because we either have someone who is a field researcher who doesn't or a trained scientist who doesn't really keep reptiles as a hobby or we have someone who isn't doesn't have a formal background uh in science who is a hobbyist and you are both can you tell us a little bit about your education yeah i can and like you said i am Kind of both. Um, I definitely started keeping snakes long before I started reading scientific papers and and doing uh, lots of nerdy book work. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, as far as the education, I did undergrad and focused on biology. I I started even as a high schooler. I was I had called the local university in town I was in and asked if they had a herpetologist I could talk to, and thankfully one was patient, and his name's uh, Joe Mendelson. He's 
at the Atlanta Zoo now. He's their curator of reptiles. Um, but anyway, he was patient and, and uh, let me come in and ask lots of questions and see all kinds of stuff and start doing stuff. I got to go through preserved specimens and cut open stomachs and key out hairs out of uh, goo balls that smelled horrible. Um, but it was still cool. I was excited to do it because I was, you know, doing research on snakes. Um, but anyway, I got to do lots of projects as an undergrad. I got to uh, be a author on a paper um, from some molecular work, DNA work I did on some uh, frog samples that Dr. Mendelssohn and one of his grad students had already collected but hadn't had time to, to do the, the lab work on and but anyway, things went really well as an undergrad, and I decided that I wanted to focus a little more on uh, a little bit more of applied science. And so, as a PhD student, uh, my the department I switched to, I stayed at Utah State University, but I switched departments. Actually, I switched colleges. I was in the College of Agriculture and and uh, in the Animal Science Department, and so I okay. focused a lot more on vertebrate reproduction and. Uh, and then a lot more molecular biology. And in the end, after several different projects kind of fizzled out, I ended up a conversation one time. The Sutherlands that own the snake keeper, some of the first ball python breeders, they had just moved from California to Utah and happened to be talking to them and ended up stemming from that conversation that I was able to help them use a bunch of data they'd collected over several years to uh, write some papers and be the basically my whole dissertation was on ball python reproductive traits. Nice. And you use a, a lot of ultrasound techniques for that. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, for, for, uh, for me myself at that point, I hadn't done much ultrasound, uh, but the Sutherland, okay. yes, they've been doing ultrasound for several years. And then since then, since I moved to Virginia, I have, uh, got an ultrasound here, and so I ultrasound fairly often. Nice. Yeah, nice. Ben, you did you now, did the demonstration uh, at ICAST, didn't you? Didn't you, Ben, about ultrasound? Yep, yep. I, I was the one yeah. that did that. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. It was the only ball python that was allowed in the facility, if I remember right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> only because she would let us see her see her follicles. <laughs> right. Nice, Bill. Do you use an ultrasound? Uh, you know, I use I use an ultrasound daily in my uh, clinical practice of <laughs> anesthesia, but I I have never used them on any of my reptiles. Okay, I'm, I'm taking I'm writing a note here to remind myself to ask Bill more focused questions. Grant, <laughs> uh, so uh, agreed. Ben, what, Ben, what can you tell us about? Uh, now you're also involved on the, I guess in the reptile industry on the hobbyist side, and you're you're a co-owner of, of Australian Addiction Reptiles. Is that correct? And what can you tell us about Australian Addiction? Um, the the business itself was started uh, by Justin Julander before he and I had met. Uh, he'd been doing uh, keeping and breeding for several years before that, and officially a business for at least, I just have to ask him, but three or four years. But before uh, 
we joined forces, but we joined forces, I think, officially in like 07. And uh, yeah, mostly started with Australian species. When I met Justin, he was pretty focused on jungle carpets. And it just, just uh, shortly after that, picked up a couple pairs of Broi and and uh, we uh, ended up joining forces and and uh, just kept picking up new projects. We branched into ball pythons some and Angolan pythons and some other species from other other uh, places, but certainly uh, a lot of our focus has been in Australia pythons, Australian pythons. So you guys, do you keep an Antaracea and Morelia? Are you doing any liasis? Uh, we do have... Um, Sorry, my mind's blank. Um, all of pythons. Those are the, the only okay. biases that we have so, yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah we do have one, one pair of olives. Um, yeah, the majority of the rest are, uh, you know, numbers-wise, certainly carpet pythons. Um, but then, yeah, pretty much Morelia and, and some ball pythons. And as far as Antaresia okay. go, Justin's got all of that at his place now, and he's certainly uh, very, very experienced with them. If anyone has Antaresia questions, they, of course, uh, he and uh, Nick wrote another book, The Complete Children's Python. And, but, yeah, I think Justin first started hatching out children's around 98, 99, 2000-something like that, and he's produced at least one species of Antaresia every year since then and several of the, well, probably two or three or four of those years now. He's produced all four kind of the main species that are here. Okay, fantastic. Are you guys keeping chondros? Yeah, Justin's right now. I actually had a male here at my place that someone that was getting married and couldn't keep it anymore. Uh, it was a really good male. I actually took him to several shows, and he was adult, uh, an adult green tree. Uh looked like an aru type and he had been captive kept for several years. He had some scars on him, so my guess is that he was a a wild caught that uh, got here somehow. But the guy that I got him from had just bought him at a show as a sub-adult. But anyway, he was super nice. Lots of people got to hold him at shows. Uh, he was a great green tree, um, but uh, I didn't have any others here and ended up selling him. But Justin's got some... Uh, you guys will have to correct me. Maruki, Maruk. How do you say that? Uh, I Maruki until Daniel Maddish was on the show, and he said Maraki. He corrected me; <laughs> and it was Maraki. So he yeah, lives well, there, or closer accent. than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I am that forever. He's raising up <laughs> some of those. I, I'm trying to remember. I know he has at least three. He might have four or five, and I don't know if they're uh, if he knows genders yet on them. But I think he's had them a little over a year now. Okay, good, nice, fantastic. So, Ben, we we were thinking that we would when we first conceived the show that we would ask you this at the end of the show, but as our listeners can tell you, our last two shows have have ended so abruptly that we weren't able to get any of this information out. So if someone is interested in contacting you, maybe uh, about some of your research or about Australian addiction reptiles, what would be the, the best way for them to get a hold of you? 
Um, the best way to get a hold of me, uh, you can go to Facebook and just type my name in, um, and you can find me and message me on there. Uh, if you go to our website, which is australianaddiction.com, so there's no S at the end, australianaddiction.com, go to our about right. us page, and it has not only my email address, it has my phone number, so you can call, text, you can email me from there. But any of those ways are... Right, email is the best way to get me. Facebook's probably second, and and text and call. I'm not super great at. But I'll get back eventually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good to know. And you're also you you're now on the Condro heavy heavy side of the U.S., which is on the East Coast now, correct? Yes. Yep. I'm in Virginia. I'm kind of the southwestern part of Virginia, but. But yeah, I'm a lot closer now than I was when I was in Utah, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, maybe we need to have you come up for a visit and so you can have some more chondros. Um, yeah, I, I see that day coming. It will It will come. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bill, and you, now, you're, you had a similar situation where you were just the, the carpet guy and People said, "Yeah, Bill. Eventually, you're going to get in the chondros and and look out." And, and if I remember correctly, you you were the person who was like, "Nah, not me." And now look at you. Yeah, I've 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 caught the bug bad, and it didn't take very much. Uh, I, I was one of those persons that it was interesting uh, listening to Ben talk about bringing that aru type male. Is it sounds like it was a, a wild or a long term captive animal and. And what I found is once you start passing around a green tree, especially an adult green tree around it shows like that, it's like a domino effect. And there, at least in my part of the country, there are so few of them. And when you can come to a show and, and you can pass around a green tree and people get over the, um, you know, the fact that they aren't all going to bite your face off and that they can be handled. Um, and that's what happened to me. I just, happened to get one in my hands and I had a couple of people that just kind of supported me and said, listen, you know, you're ready, you can do it. It's, you're not going to kill them all. And, and I, and I jumped in, uh, and I found out that they're just really, they're, they're very, very easy to keep with just, you know, just, just a little bit of experience and a little bit of help from uh, the people in the community. And, you know, I just got addicted to them. So now I've got a room full of them. Yep, I can definitely see that happening to me. I probably it's probably been six or seven years now. I bought one green tree. It was like six months old, something like that. I think the guy's name he's in Florida. If I could remember his name, you guys would recognize his name. But I think he was on the farm as Ben Team. I don't know if you remember him, but anyway, yes, I remember Ben. Okay, yeah, I don't remember his last name, but anyway, I I still to this day don't know what happened. I had, uh, let's see, what had happened? I think I had fed it. I was still young enough. I didn't know if it was a male or female. I think I had fed it, and not knowing, it must have been close to, uh, it must have been in the part of the shed cycle where, where the eyes were clear again. So anyway, I had fed it. And then the next day, I found it dead with the shed like half off. But I mean, I none of that. I've had. I've certainly had plenty of snakes that you know eat and then shed. I mean, I can't imagine there was right. that was really the reason. But I've never mm-hmm. had that happen. And so that was 
kind of bad luck for me. I, I think it was a perfectly fine animal and probably just kind of some kind of freak accident. But So that kind of turned me off to it. But this one that I had that was the adult, man, I just kept it right next to the carpet pythons and ball pythons. Didn't do anything different except for maybe right. stare at it a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> Since I hadn't had a green tree, and it was actually adult and green, and uh, my daughter sure liked them. And my wife told me that's the only kind that she would want, like on display in that house in the living room or whatever, would be some green trees. So, yeah, it'll happen. I kind of had a bad experience once, but I uh, I had my confidence back up after keeping that mail for about a year. He was certainly super easy, never any sharing problems. He ate great for me and was very handleable. And certainly something people need to worry about. You need to make sure you get one from someone that knows what they're doing and not be discouraged if you have some bad luck. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. You hit the head, you hit the nail right on the head. Get the right animal, especially if it's your first yeah. one. Get, get the right animal from the right person, and things will be rainbows. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, all that said, we still have not figured out the uh, – we're still – all of our condors are still mortal. They'll eventually we'll – all will die sooner or later, um, yeah. some sooner, some later. And sometimes things just happen that are beyond explanation and uh, – you know, you sometimes just have to accept that, unfortunately, that we are dealing with living creatures and, you know, we don't know what tomorrow will bring with them. So uh, I think we, we're we going to start talking a little bit about some uh, breeding techniques and and some going to some physiology. And I think what we're going to do is Bill and I, and Ben, you can jump in too, is um, Bill and I, I think we're, we, as we go along, we might offer our opinion on this is how maybe I, this is when I pair my animals, this is when I separate my animals, um, this is when I know a female could be gravid. So we'll, we'll try interjecting that. But one of the one of the big things that gets talked about on Morelia viridis forum this time of the year is uh, what is when is my animal ready to breed, in particular with females. Um, for years, there was like a weight, almost a protocol for weight where females had to be over a thousand grams and three years old. And then um, more recently, we're just seeing just females over four years of age are okay. And now we're starting to see people say, well, maybe we should wait till five years of age because and not really use weight. And um, I think there are are some other parameters that should be considered, and we'll try to discuss those as we go along. But, Ben, with your experience, uh, can you think of any other parameters besides age and weight that could be important when selecting animals to enter into a breeding project? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. Throat's weird. <clears throat> yes. Um, the, one of the things that we wrote about in the carpet python book and talked about before is certainly the you know the health of the female is a big part of it and her you know her weight so uh, her kind of the way we measure it is weight divided by snout vent lengths we call that um, the you know basically the females uh, uh, what's the term I'm not not on the top of my head right now but 
anyway, um, that's her condition, so maternal condition. So that's certainly important. Um, one of the things that you talk to people that have worked with a species for a long time, and so, buddy, you might have some some little tidbits that you've seen over the years, but like for me with ball pythons and carpet pythons, it's very easy for me to tell that I have put a male in too early. Because both of them, uh, the female will kind of stick her tail up in the air. She'll kind of arch it really weird. You don't really see them every once in a while. Maybe when they're defecating, you'll see them kind of do that, but not really. It's really different. They'll put it up, and they'll just kind of wave it side to side. And a lot of the time, they'll defecate and or musk, and they'll kind of smash it on the side of the cage. I've seen this in several individuals in both species, and uh, it seems like a pretty clear indication to me that she does not want to <laughs> does not want to be courted at that point. Have you seen any okay. behavior like that with green trees? I have seen female green tree pythons. Essentially, it looks to me like they're scenting that they're not happy that there's a male in their cage, more or less marking their territory. Like this is my space, please. Please stay where you are and don't bother me whatsoever. So I ha- I have seen yeah. that behavior. Yeah. So there, I mean, there are things like you you hear keepers talk about reading the animal, and there's certainly some some indicators that if you work with them a lot, and especially if you kept that individual since it's been a baby, it's pretty easy to tell if they're uncomfortable. But the one thing I I hadn't really thought this way until I was working on my PhD, but uh, when you're talking about reproduction, just in general, um, it's important to think about the resources the animal has. There's a fixed amount of resources, and reproduction takes quite a few, you know, takes up quite a bit of, of the resources they have at the time. Anything that can be taking up resources, whether they're in an environment that they're not comfortable, so they're having to either move around a lot or alter their metabolism somehow or whatever they're going to do to to help their body be the right temperature or avoid humidity or whatever, or if they're sick or if they're dehydrated or if they're, you know, any of those things, underweight, way too overweight, anything that's going to take some of the resources away from that animal will decrease the chance that it's going to be successful in a reproductive event. Right, right. So... You're saying if an animal maybe if you're maybe you've chosen a female to be paired this season and maybe if she's been sick within the past year or so you may want to reconsider just based upon what it may have taken her to recover from an illness or something as simple as dehydration how that may later on down the road affect the uh the health of the female um what about like uh physical anomalies or physical deformities? I know for a while. And it's still kind of thought this way, too. You know, condors were not really being bred a lot in captivity, so it didn't really matter maybe if an animal had a, a, a deformity that it was born with as opposed to, you know, a scar or something like that. But people would still, you know, do a pairing anyway. Um, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on using animals like one-eyed snakes or maybe a deformed tongue or maybe a skin fold or something along those lines? Um, if you have any indication that it's, uh, you know, something that's hereditary, it's a genetic thing that's going to be passed to the offspring, and that's 
kind of a no-brainer. Um, if if those eggs were incubated improperly, like we've had a couple of ball python clutches that were in the incubator when the temps when it got too hot in the room and so our incubator couldn't cool down, um, it was right. only able to warm up. And so it got too hot and we got kinked babies. Then, you know, if one of those wasn't too badly kinked and, you know, ate and went to the bathroom and all that fine, I would have been okay breeding it because I am fairly confident since I bred that, that same pairing other years and had no kinking problems, you know, then that might be okay. But, but certainly if, if that deformity causes that animal to be stressed and certainly if it's hereditary, then those are things that uh, would make me want to not breed. Right. Okay. All right. What about you, Bill, when you're selecting animals? Do you, are you looking for specific parameters to the to decide which animal is ready to be paired and maybe when the delay a pairing? Well, I think, you know, obviously I don't have a lot of breeding experience with green trees, but with carpet and ball pythons, really the number one thing that I look for is a female that uh, has obtained sufficient weight or a lot of times, more importantly, has she gained sufficient weight from her previous breeding year? Uh, some animals are able, some females are able to lay a clutch and put the size back on very quickly. Others, uh, they just they don't get on feed uh, as quickly, or even if they do, they just don't put put the size back on. Um, in, in carpets and ball pythons, I think hydration uh, is probably less of an issue. Uh, then at least in what I've seen in my limited experience with green trees, it's really uh, granted if you provide ball pythons and carpet pythons with a fresh water source, uh, they're going to remain hydrated. Uh, so the hydration to me doesn't seem to be big of, as big of an issue. It's just the generalized health of the animal and, and appropriate uh, size. Okay. So when I'm thinking about pairing, I'll look at the females and I'll, you know, try to, you know, use age. So four years seems to be the, the golden standard right now for female chondros. So I'm selecting with age. I've, I don't weigh my chondros. I, I'm, someone that's interested in the snake that I have for sale and they want to weight on it. Um, I will, you know, I'll, I'll break out the scale and weigh a, snake, weigh a snake for them. But I don't normally do that before the, the beginning of the season. And, um, but another reason that would make me scratch an animal from a breeding project would be had they been sick in the past year. Um, one of the females I'm going to pair this year, last year she decided to impale herself on a pair of feeding tongs uh, in the middle of the breeding season. So obviously that needed to be stopped, and I needed to make sure she was recovered well enough this year to proceed. Um, another thing, too, is I like to look at, like you were saying, Bill, with hydration, is if I see an animal that, uh, a female in particular that's having trouble shedding, uh, maybe it's not necessarily a retained shed, but if it's not in one piece, then I start thinking, you know, questioning maybe the status of that animal and its hydration level, especially if it's an animal that's new to my how I keep the animals. I might delay the pairing till maybe the, the following season to make sure that animal's going into the into the breeding process as hydrated as possible to give them the best the best chance for, for success as possible. 
Very good. It is uh, is uh, shedding. I guess shedding and skin turgor. Those are are the the two ways that you're judging hydration in those females, buddy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What, and what Bill means by skin turgor is you go in there and just pinch that, give that snake a pinch, and if uh, the pinch remains, uh, that's a good indicator that maybe the snake's not hydrated the way it should be. It's the skin should be, you know, have some elasticity and kind of spring back in, into place. Right, exactly. So there's a, there's All right. a couple of different... So, uh, Ben, there's a couple different ways to uh, to attempt breeding, and we can touch on these brief, briefly. And the first one is called the, the low-effort breeding technique. Are, are you familiar with that technique? Sorry, I kind of cut out. The, what was the low something? The low-effort breeding technique. Um, are you familiar I, with I it? I know kind of what that means to me. I don't know if it's the same thing. Um uh, where you're basically, to me, for Justin and I, our low-effort breeding, I mean, we keep pairs together year-round. We uh, don't really palpate or anything and just kind of let things happen as they happen. I don't know if that's kind of what you're thinking. Yes, yes. So it's yeah, a year-round pairing. Yep, yeah, Justin's very hands-off. For me, I like, to be hands-on and know what's going on every single day or every single week at least. Um, So he's much better in, like, letting the females maternally incubate, stuff like that. That makes it pretty low effort, but I I just always am too antsy to do those things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, something like a surprise batch of eggs. Particularly when you're rushing out the door. That doesn't doesn't happen (laughs) in my house, really. (laughs) <laughs> that would be low effort. Yeah. That that would be low. Yeah. And uh there the other technique which is the technique that I normally use is the intermittent uh introduction method and it sounds like that's probably the method you use, Ben. Yeah, uh, until I got the ultrasound machine, I still would keep pairs together uh year round mo- most of the pairings, but I still was pretty hands-on, you know, I definitely did artificial incubation for everything, and, you know, the other parts of it I was pretty hands-on, but I did a lot of leaving the the pairs together. Um, since I got the ultrasound machine, I do that less. I do kind of more of the ultrasound machine breeding. Uh, no follicle size, so I'll, I'll pair them up when, the, when they reach 10 to 15 millimeters, and then pair them up every month or so after that until they ovulate. So you're you're not pairing the animals, but you're cycling them, and then you're actually using the ultrasound to measure follicle size, and then you introduce the, the yeah, pair? Yeah. Yeah, so the females, and, and I know we'll probably talk about some of this more in detail, but yeah, the females, whether they're going to, whether you cycle them or not, whether you're planning to breed them or not, they usually grow follicles at least, you know, ten somewhere ten to twenty millimeters, even if they're not around a male at all and you know, there's absolutely no triggers or anything. That's just kind of their natural cycle. So uh, when they get to ten to fifteen, that's usually when I put a male in the first time. <clears throat> okay. 
And then, so, ben, you'll um, pair, you, then Ben, you'll pair roughly every month after that, once a month? Yeah, so the, I haven't done as much ultrasounding as, you know, the Sutherlands and Brian Barczyk, people like that that have thousands of animals and have been doing it several years. Um, so that's basically the the the... the, the kind of see about 10 millimeter growth every month is kind of an average thing uh, for ball pythons at least, which, you know, unfortunately for us that are in other species, uh, the ball pythons are the ones that they're the most numbers and the most research on. And so anyway, that's kind of what uh, a lot of the people that do the ultrasound breeding do. They'll grow about 10 millimeters. That's definitely an average. Sometimes they'll grow way faster than that and slower than that, but that's kind of the general rule of thumb is about once a month they're going to grow about 10 millimeters. So you kind of breed around 10, 20, 30, and 40, and then or be somewhere usually between 40 and 50 uh, with ball pythons. They'll ovulate. With carpets, obviously they're smaller eggs, and chondros would be even smaller than that. So unfortunately the person that I would ask would be Rico because I know he ultrasounds, and so he'd be the person I would ask about size and breeding uh, with chondros, but uh, yeah, I listened to that, or heard you guys talking about him earlier, it's definitely a, someone that impacted me early on, and, and uh, you know, definitely sad to know that he's gone, and I, over these last few days, you know, when he went into the hospice, and then obviously when he passed away, I've been thinking about him as well, and I'm thankful that you guys, obviously figured you guys would, would talk about that, but Definitely good guy with a lot of knowledge, and here's a good example right here. It's too bad we don't have him on, and we could ask him that. <laughs> exactly. He certainly passed along. He certainly passed along a lot of that knowledge to a lot of people. That's true. If uh, Very I would, true. Uh, buddy, and you can co- correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that the vast majority of people that are breeding um, chondros are not measuring follicles in their animals, and that's probably. Uh, same reason that most people that breed carpets and ball pythons don't. They don't have the technology. They don't have access to ultrasound. Uh, they don't right. have the skill skill to utilize the ultrasound. Um, and chondros, you know, let's face it, they're, they they uh, of the, of all of those those three species I just mentioned, they'd probably be the most difficult to learn to ultrasound just because of their their habitus and and the way they interact. So I guess my question is, if we don't have access to ultrasound, then what, you know, what would be plan B? For me, if I don't have ultrasound, I do my best to leave males in all the time. (laughs) Then I make sure they're covered. Um, I guess, buddy, you'd be a good one to ask. You said you do kind of an intermittent, is it like a five days in, three days out kind of a thing, or how do you do that? Um, I put the mail in, and normally what I do is, actually not normally, all the time, is I, in the midday, I normally put a male into a female's cage, uh, just so I don't have to worry about the female deciding to eat a male. Um, So I normally do a daytime introduction, watch watch them for the rest of the day to make sure there's no negative reaction between the snakes. Um, And I pretty much leave the male in there. I might leave him in there two or three weeks, uh, pull him out for a few days, feed the female, and I just continue to do that. And 
for me, the first thing that I'm looking for is a female who has decided not to eat anymore. That's normally an indicator I'm about maybe 30 days away from an ovulation uh, is when the female first refuses food. So that's what I'm looking for since, you know, I don't use an ultrasound. So, and I continue, that's what I do. I keep the male in there for the majority of the time, remove him to feed the female. I don't feed the male. And then after a couple of days have passed, I, I put them back together using the same daytime introduction. Okay. And do you not feed the male because you found that decreases his, his breeding activity or what, why is that? That has been my personal experience that uh, when, I put, when I feed a male that uh, he, he wants to go digest that meal and he's not interested in the female as much. Um so, you know, I've I've had had, you know, a male and a female together and they've been been locked up and both of them have had their head down like they want to eat. Um so <laughs> I think the males still want to eat, they're just not getting any food from me until they're I'm pretty sure that they've done what I need them to do. Oh, that's interesting. That's definitely different from from ball pythons and carpet pythons. That's that's interesting. Ben, do you? Uh, I usually continue to offer my males uh, small meals, uh, and, and I guess my reasoning is is just to keep up their energy source. They're, you know, they're spending not certainly not as much energy as the females are expending during the reproductive cycle, but they are expending energy. So, I offer my my male carpets uh, small meals uh, throughout the year. Yeah, I I usually when I first started breeding, just whenever it got to a point where it was cooled, you know things were cooled down, and I knew that you know at, at that point I also didn't have ultrasound, but I knew if they were going, they basically were the females were probably already well into you know ovulation or uh, moving toward ovulation if they were going to go, um, then I'd just stop feeding both males and females. And I was just kind of worried. I didn't want, you know, the the feeding to be something to distract them from the breeding. And I knew they didn't, you know, there are plenty of of males and females that breed successfully without having food for several months a year. And so that was what I would do. But at least with the the ball pythons and carpet pythons now, I I certainly just offer small meals, uh, even the females this last time i almost offered some to some females that were on eggs this last year i actually let three ball python females maternally incubate which was a huge step for me that was really hard <laughs> but it loss was of cool. control huh and yeah i did let one end go on clutch go almost the whole way maternal incubation a couple of years ago but but yeah, I've tried to force myself because when they're coming out of the egg and the mom's coils, I mean that's just such a cool thing to see. If you've never let one clutch go all the way, you got to do it at least once because it's really cool. But but anyway, yeah, I uh, I almost offered one of the females because she was doing the same thing. Like you're talking about while they're while they're breeding, they're looking around and the rats in the room. She was doing the same thing. She's on the eggs incubating, but when rats would come in the room, she'd start looking around, but I was too worried she'd come off the eggs, but I've heard people even offering while females are on eggs too, and they'll just keep on incubating. And so, I think with some species, it's it's not a problem, but that's that's definitely interesting with the green trees. That's uh, you know a different type of life history or, or a strategy that that they have in the wild, and 
maybe food is scarce enough that it's worth passing up breeding opportunities to make sure that they keep their body weight up. Right. Ben, I heard you. Right. Men- I heard you mention uh, Ben. We talked a little bit about uh, food cycling, but I heard you mention, uh, you know, uh, the, the the cooling or the temperature dropping, and so it may be a good point here to to discuss a little bit about temperature cycling, uh, what what you think it means in the reproductive process and cycle, and and kind of what your personal uh, regimen is for uh, temperature cycling. Yeah, I think, uh, and it, it certainly depends on what species you're talking about. I think in general, like if you want to say pythons in general, I think there are some females that are going to ovulate whether you cycle them or not, uh, but I think there are some that aren't going to ovulate unless you cycle, and the ones that are going to ovulate whether you do or not certainly aren't hindered by you cycling, you know, doing some kind of temperature cycling. Um, I've always lived somewhere fairly cold. Northern Utah was really cold. We'd get, you know, minus 10 and stuff like that for a few days and be below freezing for, you know, two or three weeks straight, even the daytime highs and stuff. So it was really easy to get as cold as I wanted there. And here in Virginia, still, you kind of have, you know, natural day cycle, you know, the hours of light decreases and it's cooler and stuff. So I really haven't ever done a whole lot as far as dropping tents. Even with the Angolan pythons I have, some people talked about dropping down into the 60s and stuff like that. The The most I've done is just put them at the bottom of a rack or in a in a cage that's right on the floor, so they're getting into the low 70s, but I've never dropped them down really low uh, to try to cycle them. But yeah, it certainly seems to be important, more important for some individuals than others. I think you can certainly be successful with a lot of python species without doing any cycling at all. There are people that do that temperature cycling. Um, but I think if you're trying to make sure you have as many females ovulate for you as possible, that you're going to want to do some kind of cycling. I've also heard people talk about uh, the temps being too warm, either in the male's cage or, or you know, for him, for spermatogenesis or, or uh making sperm and keeping those sperm alive. And then also in the female's cage, after she's been bred, since a lot of the time they do store sperm for a long time, people worry that if if she's been breeding with a male and the temps are too high in there, that you might be killing the, the sperm. And that's something I've never read a paper where they've studied that, that it makes sense that, you know, that's a possible thing that's happening. But maybe you guys know something a little bit more other than, you know, people wondering, I haven't really read anything where they've shown that to be the case, but don't know. Buddy, what's what what have been your experiences? Um, I've heard that and it does make sense to me, but I have no verifiable proof. Um I will mention this. Um if you really want to start a good debate, go over on the MVF and ask if females can or the sperm, um, because you'll get a, some pretty interesting answers. I know other python species can, and I don't know why chondros couldn't, but there seems to be a group of people that seem to think that um, their chondros don't do it, and so they, a lot of times you'll have a, a pairing going on, and it's not taking, and they'll put another male in, and and 
sense, you know, the, then the fem- then the female goes to ovulation, becomes gravid, and they assume that the first that the second male is the the male that was able to follow through. But I always wonder, like, well, how do you know the first one wasn't the one, and just the female needed longer to develop and grow the follicles and and follow through? So that that's my little comment on that section. That's uh, that's very interesting, and I'd love to if somebody does that and is interested in really knowing um I'd love to have them send me shed skins from babies <laughs> and I can I can uh give them an answer I can do some paternity testing I did some of that for my dissertation and do some genetic fingerprinting um so yeah that's something I would be more than happy to give someone a real answer maybe maybe they don't want the real answer <laughs> but if they did want the real answer I could I could tell you for sure whether it was single single paternity or multiple paternity. Interesting. Um, given what's been shown across snake species, um, I would be extremely surprised if it's not happening. I think that there are probably breeders, green tree python breeders, that could give you some data on that. I would imagine there are times where uh, they've bred a male to a female and didn't think anything was going to happen, and then you know a month or two later they end up getting an ovulation, so obviously that sperm got stored at least for a little bit. Um, but right. I haven't looked specifically at green tree python literature, um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's possible, and if that is true, that would be really interesting because other python species, and certainly the majority, vast majority of snake species do it and can do it for four to six months pretty easily, sometimes over a year. Right. Yeah, with the ball pythons, okay. the ball pythons, it's real easy, uh, and I've personally had it happen uh, because most of those breedings are uh, genetic mutations, recessive or dominant co-dominant, and so you know when yep. you know when a when a baby pops out of the egg and it's a pastel, and you didn't breed a pastel that year, but you bred one the year before. That you huh. know, that's a no-brainer. The chondros, it's. It's much more difficult, though, because there are not any other than the albinos, there aren't any uh, inheritable genetic traits that follow Mendelian right. uh, genetics. Yeah, I know what some people have done is maybe they've put a pairing together and uh, maybe they've had, maybe they put a male in that for the known reproductive history of the male, of this particular male, it, it only produces red babies. So what they might do is they might select an animal which has another male which has been shown historically to produce a mixed clutch of both red and yellow babies. And sometimes people will use that as an indicator upon hatch of if it's an all-red clutch, then it was the first male. And if it was a mixed clutch, it was the the second male that that, uh, sired the clutch. So interesting. So I know that that's that's one way people have done it pat in the past with chondros. Um but I'm not sure if it was it, if it was all one or the other that would work. But if it's if it's partially sired by, you know, if a fourth of them are sired by one one male and the other three fourths are sired by the other then that would be a hard way to know. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, uh the a lot of <laughs> You know, I love the chondro community, but a lot of stuff that happens with other pythons, we kind of, I don't say we ignore it, but it's not really been brought up and thoroughly discussed, and that is one of them is, you know, 
you know, being able to ha- have a clutch with uh, multiple sires. So that's uh, maybe Bill, you should get on there and bring that up. <laughs> yeah, that <Okay>. could. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You don't want to stop on fire, buddy. I'm sorry, say that again. I said you don't want to be the one to stoke the fire. <laughs> um, I've, I've I have done that in the past with other things, and I've I've kind of sat back when this discussion has happened before, and just kind of, you know, grabbed the bag of popcorn and just read through and watched everything progress. Um, so yeah, no, I don't want to I don't want to start that fire. Um, but but I got a question for you. Ben, I was wondering if you could maybe for we might have some folks that are just new to the whole breeding process in general, and uh, you know, can you maybe describe what a follicle is? Yeah, so a lot of the time, kind of the main anatomy, female anatomy we hear about are oviducts and you know ovulation, and uh, people don't really talk a lot about the ovary. So it's a it's a separate you know, anatomical organ, you know, reproductive organ of the female reproductive tract. So the, the okay. uh, ovary has follicles on it. That most of them are really small. So what happens is each year when it comes time, you know, whatever the stimulus is or stimuli are, uh, some of those follicles will start to grow. And so that's called follicular genesis, where some of those basically they're called recruited follicles. They'll start to fill with fluid. They'll get bigger and bigger. And so basically what that follicle is is one cell from the female. It's an egg inside of that. But what you're seeing is mostly fluid filling that that area. It, when you look at ovaries, if you, you know cut open, for me it's mostly been cow and pig and stuff like that that I've done with research, but I've seen lots and lots of ovaries over the years from uh, livestock animals. But you basically, they kind of look like blisters, so that there's the ovary, the ovarian tissue, you'll see these, they just look like blisters um, that are, you know, fairly high pressure, look like they're going to pop at any moment. Um, so after a while, they'll get to a certain point, and then what happens is the the growth of that follicle um, gets to the point where the female starts to put, you know, basically what's going to become the yolk, so the the nutritional things. It's not just fluid anymore. It's actually putting lipids and proteins, things that are going to feed the, the embryo while it grows, not only while, while inside, you know, in utero, inside the female, but then also while the egg is incubating for egg-laying species, of course. And so that's called vitelogenesis. That's the really expensive part for the female. That's where a lot of her resources are going to be going to to those eggs. If you compare the the mass of the clutch to the mass of the female, and think about the fact that a lot of that is basically food storage. She's putting all of this food, all this energy into these eggs. It's it's a very expensive thing for that female. And uh, so the, the part where... It changes from being a follicle to being an egg is when it's ovulated. When it's ovulated, it that that basically that blister that kind of bursts or whatever. That at that point it becomes an egg. It leaves the the ovary and enters into the oviduct. So the anterior part of the oviduct that's closest to the head kind of has a funnel shape, and so the the eggs that are ovulated that leave the ovary 
go into that funnel-shaped part, and that's why you see this huge swelling, green tree python swallowed a you know, baseball or whatever, is because all of those eggs that are, at that point, they're still single cell, all the DNA is from the mom. Um, they go into that funnel, the, the front part of the oviduct, and they have to all jam-pack, you know, together to, to each singly go through. And while the, the eggs go through, they're actually little compartments in, in all of the python species that have been studied. But like I said, I haven't seen it specifically for green tree pythons. But they basically have these little sacks um, that they store sperm in. Sperm is actually kind of attracted to them, um, and there's some studies with snakes where they've shown that it seems when the eggs, or at that point, the follicles go into vitellogenesis, there seems to be some kind of feedback, some kind of of uh, uh, messages that are sent, and somehow there's some kind of molecule that must be uh, produced in these sperm storage sacs, or they're called a lot of different terms, but basically where the sperm are going to be when ovulation happens. But anyway, in some snake species where they've studied them, it seems that there's a pretty high correlation once the follicles go into vitellogenesis, which obviously is a while before they're ovulated, um, there's those uh, sacs where the sperm is stored until ovulation, they basically attract the sperm. So sperm that's still in kind of the posterior part of the oviduct near where copulation occurred, they start to migrate okay. from that posterior part through the main body of the oviduct into these into these sacs. And so when the eggs go through there, because of the pressure of the egg sitting through there, pushes sperm out of some of those, those uh, you know, sacs and they fertilize the egg. And so as they're Ovulated, they go through the funnel, the the front part of the oviduct. They, the pressure of them moving through that small space is what causes the sperm to be released, and they get get uh, fertilized. And they move into the middle part of the oviduct is where you'll see them kind of restring out. Your female looks more normal shape because they've strung through that long middle part of the oviduct where they'll be shelled and, and then uh, stay until it's time for oviposition. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. A, that's a great that's a great description, Ben. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, um, you know, you described a follicle uh, as a single cell, almost like a blister, and so I was thinking, well, if you had a, a female chondro, say, that was dehydrated, she's going to have some she's going to have some trouble even during the early, the folliculogenesis part of reproduction, huh? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, cups of fluid or anything, but it is fluid that needs to be put into those follicles to get them to grow, yeah. And if she's dehydrated, especially if it's to the point where, you know, she's very stressed and it's hard for metabolism to occur properly because of the lack of water and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I would imagine the last place that her body's going to deposit any fluid would be the follicles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So you know that could be a parameter. That that could be a parameter. So maybe you know an animal that's not hydrated properly. We we would maybe want to work on that before following through with a, a pairing to uh, make sure that she's going to have the best chance for success. 
Yeah, for sure. That would that would be a good okay. parameter to be thinking about. <laughs> All right, excellent. Ben, are, ben, are there any any safety mechanisms that would prevent a female with, uh, say, poor body condition, whether it's dehydration or an illness, that would prevent her from following through the, the breeding process? Yeah, so some research, you know, once again, it's you know not specifically on the species we're most interested in, but similar species um, in the water python, and then also I think there are uh, some European vipers. Um, so this is work that Rick Shine was was involved with. I think both both of these studies, but anyway, they were able to see kind of a threshold. If you look specifically at the the body condition of the female, so her weight divided by her length, so you have an idea of how fat or skinny. In humans, we call it BMI or bas- <laughs> body mass index. Um, so if you look at that, basically body condition. And they were able to set a threshold. I think with the vipers, uh, they set a specific threshold and looked at you know several of these females in the wild, and they were able to see this specific you know say it's so many grams per per centimeter snout vent length. When you're above that, they had 88% of the females ovulate, and below that, 0% ovulated. So there seemed to be a very clear threshold if the female was above this body condition she would go or was extremely likely to go but below it none of them went and there's a very similar thing with water water pythons as well i can't remember the percent on that um but it, it was also a fairly clear threshold when they looked at a bunch of females over you know a few years and paid really good attention to that specifically it was very clear that there is definitely a body mass index or a, you know, a body condition, whatever you want to call it, uh, that threshold where they will go or they won't go. Um, as far as other things, there was a researcher at Utah State University. She was on my committee, and she worked with Dale DiNardo before she came there, and a lot of his work is really interesting with python reproduction. Um, her name Susanna French. She was working with lizards, and she found that uh, one of the things she would do is she would cause like a, a small sore, so it's kind of like a you know making a scab on the the lizard. But even something as sim- simple as that on the small lizard causing some kind of a, a you know scab or whatever, something that the animal has to put some resources toward to heal, that would negatively impact, decrease their reproductive output or uh, probability of, mm. of successful reproduction. So even something as simple as that, uh, certainly an illness, especially if it was a, you know, a significant illness, uh, definitely is there. There, that there are safety mechanisms there. Basically, the body knows this much energy needs to go to healing or to you know whatever to overcome these things. Or I don't have enough energy with a low, you know, body condition, and so it basically won't put any resources toward reproduction. Ben, you know, one of the things that is probably is, uh, I'm sorry, buddy, I was just going to ask Ben, one of the things that probably is, is rarely or never seen in the wild, but which can happen in captivity all the time is the, is the opposite end of the spectrum where you're trying to, to breed a female that's obese. And uh, are you aware of any literature or any, 
you know, studies that go, well, you know, the animal's just so obese, she's not going to produce. Yeah, that's certainly one thing. You can ask any field researcher, and the little bit of field research I did, and you pretty much never see fat snakes. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. They're uh, they're uh, out there making a living for themselves. They're never fat, especially compared to captive ones. Um, in the in the uh, study that we did with the Sutherlands, we're talking a thousand clutches, so like six, seven thousand eggs. Um, in their population, uh, and I I have a a graph in the Carpet Python book that shows this, but basically in their population, they're feeding a fairly small, I think it's like a medium-sized rat for these adult female ball pythons, like 100 grams um, during the most of the year and a smaller one during the breeding season, closer to 50 or 60 grams, um, and then a weekly offering. And even at the very high end of that, the, the fattest snakes, you know, biggest snakes, uh, highest maternal condition, body weight, uh, there was no drop-off. So we didn't start to see any negative effects of being overweight. I've certainly heard lots of breeders talk about not only females but males as well, that they get too overweight, then they're not going to breed. But as far yes. as in a paper, I've never read that. And unfortunately, most of the research, reproduction research being done is being done on wild populations, which, like you said, right. that doesn't happen in the wild. Um, right. So I would like to see more of that done with captive. I mean, there's breeders now producing tens of thousands of reptiles a year, so it would be very easy to see, you know, if you can get to the point where you start to see a drop-off where you're, getting a bigger female isn't going to help you get more eggs. It's actually going to hurt things. I would imagine that it would happen, but I haven't seen it in a paper. I I can only relate um, um, just some of my own personal experiences with carpet pythons. Uh, and again, totally different uh, animal than green trees. Uh, but I have just I guess throughout the carpet community, I'm probably known for somebody that uh, a lot of people would say that I overfeed my animals. Um, when I get a female carpet python ready to breed, I feed her heavily. Uh, she's big. She's thick. Um, carpet pythons can obviously become obese, and I don't, I don't think I push that. But you know, I end up having very large clutches. I mean, I have 25, 26, 28 egg clutches and uh, talk to some of the other carpet uh, breeders out there whose whose clutches are, are the order of 10 or, or 12 and I just I think I've pushed a lot of females to the upper limits of, of weight and breeding and they produce big clutches now what I don't know and I haven't seen it yet because I I just haven't kept carpets more than you know 10 12 14 years is that going to impact their lifespan and I think that may be a very uh, reasonable question. That's just my own, you know, empirical uh, observations and just my relatively small collection. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what I've seen and what I've heard. And unfortunately, there's not really any information on lifespan that I know of with any python species and you know, reproduction versus lifespan and hopefully people are kind of keeping track of some of that and uh, a lot of people you know they're they're 
the majority of people keeping pythons now have only been doing it for a few years. There aren't a lot of people that have been doing it for 20 years or whatever. I hope that at some point we can get some of that data. That would be really useful, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it would be certainly the if if you ask the vast majority of of chondro breeders, they'll and uh, David Natouche, who was on the show uh, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, you know, will tell you that, that that the wild animals are are they almost are sickly thin, um, you know, the ones yeah. that are are producing and and uh, I think people the the successful chondro breeders, captive bred chondro breeders in the United States will tell you that the key to their success is keeping both animals thin. Yeah. Well, one thing that was really interesting from from the study with the Sutherlands was I was able to compare their you know, breeding results, breeding traits for their females, their clutch size, clutch mass, stuff like that, and then take it there are two other studies I found that were done on wild populations. So if you compare the captive population there at the Sutherlands, uh, their female uh, relative mass, you know, their body condition was actually higher than the average for the wild populations, which isn't surprising. Like we said, usually our animals are fatter than what you see in the wild. But the interesting thing is... (laughs) The clutch size, if I compared the captive population clutch size to the wild, it was actually lower. <laughs> so their females hmm, had really? a higher body condition, but their clutch size was lower. It was like 6.3 or 6.4 versus like 7.7 or something like that. Wow. So it wasn't a huge hmm. difference, but it was statistically significant. So hmm, right. But that percolate through your brain that's pretty interesting with all that we're doing even having better body mass we still can't produce clutch sizes like the wild populations can (laughs) but Mm -hmm. one part of that that we don't know is how often those females are breeding in the wild obviously in captivity they're being you know put a male put with them pretty much every year whereas in the wild they're more than likely only breeding like every two or three or four years. So so that's another part of the puzzle that I don't know what's happening in the wild, but it was interesting that those wild populations, the clutch sizes were as large as they were. Well, we can certainly extrapolate... We can certainly extrapolate data from the wild to captivity, but but you're absolutely right. They really are, in a sense, uh, two different animals in, in two different environments. So it's... Very interesting. Yep. So, Bill, how do you uh, cycle your snakes when you're approaching the breeding season? You know, again, my vast experience, uh, this will be my second year to breed chondros. <laughs> but I can <laughs> tell you I I haven't uh, cycled them any differently than I do uh, my room. I've got a single snake room, and in, in it I keep ball pythons, carpet pythons, and now green tree pythons. And and I do a, a slight uh, temperature cycling, um, and which I actually started today. I lowered my uh, uh, ambient nighttime room temperatures just a degree or two, and I'll I'll continue to do that. I use the Marshall Mendez formula for cycling because he keeps, um, you know, we live in geographically very 
similar types of the country. We're both in the south, and and he keeps ball pythons and green trees in his in his room, uh, as do I. So uh, Marshall's been very successful for longer than I have. So I'm I'm kind of following what he does, and it's a gradual but slight temperature uh, decrease. And that's only at night. I keep my daytime uh, temperatures the same year-round. I just uh, okay. cycle, and I'll drop maybe maybe five degrees uh, for five or six months of the year uh, during the evening, and and that's it. I don't alter my uh, my my hot spot, uh, and I don't alter my daytime temps. What about lights? Do you alter the light cycle at all? Um, I may alter it just uh, a couple hours. Like in the summer, I'll have a 10-hour. Uh, I've got a timer on my room. I've got a small window uh, in my room. And in, uh, during the summer months, it's on for uh, 12, 12 hours of the day. And, and in the winter, my lights are on 10 hours of the day. Okay. What about food cycling? Have you ever tried that? I never have. Uh, I like you. I like to use... Um, the offering of food to my females as a sign of where I am in the reproductive stage, because uh, either I'm not very observant or, you know, I just, I, I rarely catch my carpets ovulating. I catch almost all my ball pythons ovulating, but I rarely catch my female carpets. So I, like you use the offering of food to kind of judge where I am uh, in, in the reproductive process. But I, I, I never withhold food from, uh, from males or females, I just uh, decrease the size of the meals to both of them and maybe the uh, increase the duration of offering. Okay. What about you, Ben? Do you use light or food cycling in, in addition to temperature cycling or in lieu of? Um, I definitely will offer smaller food items. Um, for me, I, I do know now you know exactly where the female is as far as follicle size, so I kind of cheat right. that way. Uh, yeah, definitely. If she's growing big follicles and close to ovulating, I'm not going to be giving her a normal-sized rat, you know. Um, light cycle, I've taken the, the low, you know, low uh, work uh, way to do it and, you know, just the lazy way, just whatever comes through the windows, what happens. So. <laughs> um, there right, is, okay. Um, some light cycle difference year to year, obviously, anyone in the U.S., that's going to change. Um, but yeah, that's it. And then I I guess I kind of try to keep my room around low 80s to high 70s most of the year, the room itself, and then a hot spot between 90 and 95. And then in the wintertime, I'm fine with the room dropping down to low 70s and even high 60s you know towards the floor where it's cooler it might it might sometimes be in the high 60s but that's about as cold as I let let it get but it you know me, me, medium height to high height in the room you know the cages or racks or whatever they're never going to be below 70 and the hot okay. spot still is going to be around 90. It might be a little bit lower just because the room's cooler, but it's it's pretty much the same. And I I don't have any kind of daytime, you know, drops or whatever, or nighttime drops. Or it's just always the heat tapes running the same 24/7. Okay. What about what about okay. you, buddy? Um, I've 
I've done all but the food cycling. I can, if we step back, maybe <laughs> I hate to say this, uh, twenty some years ago, um, I actually was yeah, able to. You must have been six. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wish. Um, yeah, at a at a two in front of that six, and that's where I was twenty years ago. Um, but so anyway, the uh, I was able. I had a dedicated reptile room at the time, and uh, also the the first like proportional thermostats were coming out on the market, and um, so I had. My brother-in-law had wired up my uh, my lights so that they had a photo cell, and he reversed it. So the the lights came on, and when the sun one came up, and the lights went off when the sun came down. And we also he also figured out a way to hook up my my hotspot stuff um, through the through the same process. So wow, high tech, yeah, yes, high tech for the day, uh, and I was really lazy. Um, so that worked really well, but then if, and when the Helix came out with a, uh, they had like a, a light cell that you could actually, when the lights came on, the heat came on, and I eventually moved all that stuff over. But so what happened was, you know, obviously being on the East Coast, you know, during the summer we get about 14 and a half, 15 hours of daylight, the peak of the summer, and in the winter it's maybe, you know, eight. Um, I would, use that as how everything was cycled and I would keep the uh, room temperature at about 70, between like a 77 and 75. So in the peak of the summer, the hot spots were on 14 hours, which, you know, was in the 90, 92 range for everything I was keeping. I wasn't keeping chondros at the time, but I was keeping a couple of species of carpets, uh, a couple of species of lias and a couple of species of antaresia. So they were all in tuned on the same cycle and after a few years of running the room that way, um, about this time of the year, my females would go off feed, and um, I would introduce males, and uh, I'd, I would never see an ovulation. I never saw an ovulation in any female python until I started keeping chondros, um, but I would just look for an out-of-cycle shed, and normally in March or so, I would have eggs being laid, you know, late February to the end of March, and then the eggs would be hatching out, you know, about eight weeks later, um, and so everything kind of ran through that, and so fast forward to a, I'm at the location I am now, and didn't don't have really a dedicated area or room for snakes. I just kind of use temperature cycling. I don't use lights, and I used to drop the condors really low. I I would give them like a 90 or 92 degree hot spot and when I cycled them I would take them down to the you know maybe 68 or 66 degrees which at that time was the ambient temperature of the room in the evenings where I was keeping the snakes and uh, that worked out well um, kind of and I also was a heavy mister at the time and I did run into issues with respiratory infections and so that led me to uh, not spraying as much and to lowering my warm spots to about right now the 86 is about what I run for a hot spot and the lowest I take them is probably like 72 or 74 in the evening when I'm cycling them and, and I just mm -hmm. give the 12 on and 12 off so I just yeah. do that and I just start about a month before I'm going to do an introduction and I keep it that way 
until the female lays eggs. And uh, how how long you're keeping the males in with the females the majority of the time with just an occasional you'll remove the male during that time for, yeah. for feeding? Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I see an ovulation, I'll pull the male at that point. Sure. Um, but I sure. normally leave them in there until, until I see ovulation or until I uh, notice a shed that's out of cycle, which is, I guess my, my advice is if you're not big on record keeping, um, and you're going to do chondros and you, you don't have an ultrasound machine that Ben has, is that at least keep a, 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 a record of when your snakes are shedding because my experience has been the shed tends to be delayed when it's uh, a, a pre-lay shed. So it's a shed that's later than normal than you would expect for the females. I had a pairing this past year that um, I started pairing them in the end of January and the female laid eggs the end of Actually, like the first week of September, so so that's how long that particular pairing took. And that entire time, the animal was being cycled, and until I saw the ovulation, the the male was uh, was kept in the cage. Mm-hmm. Very good info. I think that's the kind of stuff that uh, you know a lot of the first time or novice. Chondro uh, breeders listening are, are, are going to want to hear. Certainly, that's what I'm interested in hearing. Ben, have you noticed with uh, new females that, um, of course, you may not if you're using the ultrasound, but maybe before you you were had access to the ultrasound, did you notice that new females seem to take a little bit longer to grow follicles to and then you know ovulate and lay eggs? I've noticed maybe almost a six or eight weeks uh, increase in length with a first-time female as opposed to a female who's been paired before. Have you noticed any anything similar to that? So you're saying basically the first year the female would go, she'd give you a clutch later in the year than other years or kind of right. on average yes. to the other females? Yes. Well, uh, first time I've, I've, takes a little longer. I've, sorry, what was that? So yeah, so the first clutch maybe maybe if I have I started a couple of pairings at the same time, and one of the females this is the first time she's ever been paired, uh, she may lay eggs you know maybe six weeks or eight weeks later than the other females that were paired that had, had previously produced clutches. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, like specifically that it was like their first time breeding. I thought of it more as you know, maybe I, they basically were at the low end of the age, you know, where where they could be breeding, and so I was maybe putting the male in too early for them. Um, but I never thought about it that way, that it could be that even if I waited another year, that she still would go later than, so you're basically saying the time from the time you first put a male in until you get a clutch, you're noticing that being longer for a first-time female than for others? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I I have seen that and I've always just kind of attributed it to you know, if I had waited another year, she'd be like all the other females, but I never thought okay. about it that way. There's certainly uh in livestock animals, there's definitely a big difference. That's why in cattle we have, you know, heifers and cows and pigs, we have, you know, sows and uh and gilts, so gilts haven't been bred before and there's that there's 
definitely a big difference in the way they reproduce and the quality of babies, the number of babies, all those things. There's definitely a big difference from a first-time female versus one that's reproduced at least one other time. I never even thought about that with snakes, but yeah, that, I definitely have seen that. Okay. What about you, Bill? Have you ever seen something similar in your experience? You know, I uh, kind of like Ben, I haven't really n- noticed it, but but now that you mention it, uh, yeah, it makes it makes perfect perfect sense that that would that that would be the case. Um, but I, you know, I I could probably go back through my uh, breeding and in, in uh, you know look, looking at my breeding cards on the females, and I could probably I could probably see that trend. But until you mentioned it, I, I haven't noticed it. Okay. All right. Ben, I've I've often wondered too, like I've maybe I've I've begun the cycling process. Um, do you think that just maybe having the male courting the female, do you think that in its own right could, is enough to stimulate follicle growth? Yeah, I definitely think that it helps. Uh there was a study done by Del Donardo, mentioned his name earlier. He's at Arizona State University, if I remember right. Um, He did a study on blood pythons, and I don't remember the specifics of the paper anymore, and if anyone's interested in it, let me know, and I can send you a PDF. But, But, yeah, there definitely seemed to be a difference between females that had a male present and then females that did not, Uh, if I remember right the females that did not have a male present basically kind of went through follicular genesis. They went through that early stage where there's some fluid added to those follicles, but then that's as far as they went, and they just regressed and didn't ever ovulate, didn't ever even go into vitelogenesis, most likely, whereas the ones that were had a male present, some, I don't remember a percentage anymore, but there were at least some of those that did go into vitelogenesis, ovulate, lay eggs, but the ones with no males present, it didn't seem like they even went into vitelogenesis. So yeah, there's some some other layers of you know controls, things like that, that would be good to throw on top to be really uh, you know have a really good conclusive study, um, and then obviously with other species too. But, but there certainly is a study out there with a python species that seems to sh- indicate that having that male present does make a difference on how far that female is going to go. Basically, if, if there are no males present, she's not going to spend the energy on growing you know, really energy-rich follicles because they might not get fertilized. So, so right. it makes sense that that kind of check is there, and there is some, some indication in that study that that's the case. Ben, let me ask you a question in uh, some of the uh, your experience or some of your research with ball pythons and other species. What is happening when a female appears to have a normal ovulation and then she goes to lay a, a, a clutch of complete uh, slugs? What, what's going on there? Is there something that we can – did we do something wrong when that happens, or what's going on? I have thought about that a lot. Um, and not even, I mean, obviously the, the total slug out clutches, which I had one, was it last year? No, two, 
Yeah, it was two years ago. I had a, a jag female that I bred to a zebra that just completely slugged out on me. Um, kind of the anecdotal evidence, and I, I just haven't seen any papers that have talked about that, any good studies, but anecdotal evidence, I think if you talk to, to breeders that have been doing this for a while, um, the kind of things that they'll suggest as possible answers, one, which would explain my clutch two years ago is a first-time breeder male and maybe he just didn't have good, you know, modal sperm yet. Um, the, he did have sperm plugs. He was young. You know, he was on the young side. He was on the small side. But certainly within the limits that, you know, many other people have had males breed successfully. But I didn't, you know, get a sperm sample and put it under a microscope, um, which maybe at some point I'll I'll do that. But so that's one one potential explanation. If you look at the clutches where you have a total slug out or a partial slug out and you have a young male, that could be a reason. Maybe he just didn't have good sperm. I remember uh Bob Applegate talking about that on his website. He's got some really cool uh data and things that he wrote down from many years ago. He's been breeding colubrids for a lot of years. Um, but that was one thing he did is he bought a microscope so he could look and he would make sure that, that males had good modal sperm before he would breed them. So that would take care of that if that was a, an explanation. The other explanation that I've heard lots of times, like we talked about earlier, I don't I don't know for sure, but it's just that you have that male or that female has access to too warm of temperatures and you've basically cooked the sperm and so it's not mm. it's no good anymore. That's possible. Mm-hmm. Would either of those seem like they would explain the I think if I I remember uh might have been I don't remember if it was a show or a, a previous one, but you talking about having a slug out, right? Yeah, it was it was me. I had a, a pair of eighty eight percent uh diamonds uh that that slugged out. Yeah. So how was the male? Was he a first time breeder or was that not the case? Uh, no, he was uh I'm not sure if he was a a first time breeder, but he was big. I mean he was yeah. they were both they're both very big bodied uh, adult uh, pair that uh, I just had acquired within the last couple of years. Uh, so mm-hmm. it it was probably a temperature issue. I probably uh, you know, probably a temperature issue. Yeah, that's that would be what I've heard anecdotally, but yeah, like I said, I haven't seen an actual study. It would be nice to, unfortunately, to have a really good answer to that. You know, from an experimental design standpoint, you're going to have to have a fairly large sample size <laughs> and sure. randomly separate out into various temperature. You know, at least three or four different temperatures. So it's it's not a not a cheap experiment to run <laughs> so yeah. from like for me doing it as a breeder um but that would be really interesting to uh to set something up like that if someone had the resources to do so well we always i think all of us always try to learn from our mistakes or if something hasn't worked we try to figure out why and what we can mm-hmm. do to change it you know in the future so yeah when i come through you know those thousands of eggs or, you know, hundreds of clutches, thousands of eggs from the Sutherlands trying to see correlations I could pick out of there. And I just didn't really, nothing really stuck out to me. 
you know, clutches mm. with a slug or, or multiple slugs versus fully fertile clutches, there wasn't really anything that jumped out at me. And I, I was definitely thinking about it a lot at the time and would have loved to have something about that in my dissertation or in the Carpet Python book. But, yeah, just nothing right. really jumped out. So it's just kind of stuff that we haven't done a really good experiment on, you know, that those those couple of things might explain it. But if it's something you're worried about and you have first-time breeder males, I'd say it'd be worth looking on eBay or places like that, see if you can get a microscope. It doesn't have to be a very expensive or, you know, it's fairly simple microscope. You just need to be able to zoom in on, be able to see sperm moving as long as it's there and it's moving and and you know you're good to go. Right, right. Uh, bear, um, buddy, have you have you had a, a clutch of chondro or any other species you've worked with that have ever uh, uh, had you know uh, produced slugs? Yes, yes, I've had. I've had. I'm trying to think, I had a clutch in 2012 that was all slugs. Um, and that was a young male, so I think it was with a proven female. So I think probably the case there was that it was a, a male that was too young. Um, and so, yeah, I've had one clutch that I can recall that was a complete slug out. I also had another clutch uh, with a female, and it was her first time breeding with a proven male. And she went, I thought she ovulated. But it looked like the ovulation was lasting for, instead of maybe a, a day, it was four days. It was really drawn out, and I was really concerned. I was on the verge of actually taking her to the vet. And then, uh, you know, I was like, okay, tomorrow if I wake up and she still looks swollen like this, I'm going to take her to the vet to see Heather. And um, then the remain the next day, she was, you know, after I decided that was the cutoff point, she was back to normal looking and she mm-hmm. laid a clutch that was all but one egg was were slugs mm-hmm. and uh, i'm not sure what exactly was you know going on with that uh, with the ovulation why it was so slow why it was so delayed now she's has since one on and, and produced other clutches for me and they've been fine um but that was that was an interesting experience um that I don't I don't hope I don't want to have again. Um but yes, yeah, so yeah. it was a nice, you know, 18, 18 fully formed eggs of which one was fertile. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So it wasn't even that they were the small, you know, obvious slug ones. They were all properly shelled and everything that just only one yes. was same. Wow, yep. that's really interesting. Do you, do you happen to have a guess whether that that fertilized one was the very first one or the very last one or somewhere in the middle as far as being laid? You know, that that's a great question. I wasn't I wasn't around when she actually laid. I was, you know, out you know, doing something or another and came back and peeked in the egg box and she was done. Um the interesting thing is that uh we should we'll touch on this a little bit later. She had wrapped them all really tightly. It was probably the best uh, I've ever seen one of my female green tree pythons actually wrap a, a clutch. I mean, it was completely off the ground, uh, beehived, and I was just able to 
poke and look in and saw, you know, a whole bunch of pearly white eggs and it's like, okay, I'll come down later and, you know, take the eggs from her. And when I went down, it was just like one egg after the other, after the other was a slug. Um, when you, uh, when you, when you candle them. Yep. Yep. Now yeah. the, the complete slug out clutch, I knew that they were going to be slugs because, uh, I came, same thing. I came home, um, there was a, you know, the snake was in the egg box and, uh, she was just off, off on her own. And there was just, uh, you know, 17 or 18, uh, just small, not really fully formed slugs, um, small yellow slugs that were just yeah. scattered about the, the, the egg box. So, yeah. Well, that's, so, that leads know, us. That leads us into kind of, you know, maybe the other, I know one of the other things we wanted to touch with Ben on was, you know, what exactly is happening during egg deposition? You know, what what's the female doing? And and, and maybe Ben can describe a little bit about, about that process. Yeah, so uh, basically once the, the eggs have been there in the, the middle part of the oviduct, where the shelling and the majority of the incubation occurs. Uh, once they get towards the, the end of that, uh, then those eggs, there's basically there's a membrane that's around each of those eggs that it, it releases that from. And so sometimes some of us, uh, unfortunately I had this with the pet uh, granite female, um, carpet python, Sometimes that's part of the problem why they're getting egg bound is they can't those those eggs don't get out of that membrane that's around each egg. Um, but anyway, they break out of that. So there are hormones that are released. It's very similar, like if, if some of you listening probably had or maybe had some egg binding issues. So you take them and the doctor's gonna give them. You know the vet's gonna give them same same hormones that they would give your wife or girlfriend or whoever, uh, you know, human females, if they're having problems or if they want to induce labor, it's the same thing. So the, the hormonal signal that sent the eggs uh, break out of that membrane and move towards the the opening, you know, the cloaca and get laid. And uh, one of the one of the things that was really interesting. Um, I was talking to Dave Barker one time, and he said that they had a, a film company come, and they did a time lapse for a female, I believe it was a children's python. So they did a time lapse for her while she was uh, laying, incubating those eggs, and he said it was pretty amazing all the things that she did as far as pushing eggs out and, and uh, moving things around, laying an egg, moving around, searching, checking. It's almost like she's checking temp and or humidity. And I don't know if it's like that in all species, but he said it was a pretty pretty remarkable video that now is like buried in some warehouse somewhere and you'd have to pay thousands of dollars just to be able to even look at it yourself, let alone show it to anyone. Unfortunately, they have the rights to it. But if you're in a while happened to be talking to, to Dave Barker, ask him about that video. I don't remember the details anymore, but I mean, it was pretty remarkable, all the things that female did while she was laying those eggs. So there is a lot of their sensory 
organs are being used to to figure out how to put this clutch together the best way possible depending on the environmental conditions if it's warmer then it's good for the eggs or too cold then you know what the eggs need will change how they how they uh you know whether they'll beehive up and pull them off the ground or whether they'll have really loose coils there's some work by Del Donardo, mostly on children's pythons, but I think he's done it with some other species as well. But he's really paid attention to a lot of aspects of, of you know, the clutch being laid, the exchange of oxygen, different things, and how that will affect how that female wraps those eggs. It's actually a pretty, pretty interesting thing. So, and there is a fair amount of observations and a little bit of experiments that that have been done on that part of the process. Interesting. Uh Ben, can we back up for a sec? You were saying once so once the eggs they're they're in the uh, the, the eggs been inoculated, they're actually still surrounded by a membrane prior to Yeah, I have some prior to laying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and okay. I uh, learned something new. I to, uh, yeah, I need to look and see that tried to dig it out. There's a a book that's called oh, I should have looked up the title. I don't have it down here with me. It's like Reproductive Physiology and Phylogeny of Snakes or something like that. But anyway, it's kind of the Bible of snake reproduction. Um but I need to dig through there and see if there's some kind of a name for that. But I have pictures of the the eggs that the female carpet pythons, that heck granite girl, they got egg bound. And that's literally all that needed to happen for her was for them to break out of that membrane and she would have been able to lay them just fine, but they were stuck in that membrane. I had to, I, you know, was kind of pushing them out myself, but they get to a point, all I need to do is just kind of break that membrane. They just pop right out and then she was fine. And that was the, her problem. They were not leaving that membrane, whatever whatever it's called. I need to find the name of that. But. That I have. That's great. I've I learned something new tonight. Was not aware of that. <laughs> did you know that, Bill? Um, no, I can't say that I did. Okay, it's good good info. Sure. Yep, definitely. Um, I know one of the big things with uh chondros is that uh see a lot of co- female chondros they uh they scatter their eggs or they'll they'll lay in the the water bowl um or they'll they'll drop the eggs from the perch um and when I know one of the things I do is uh my friend Tim Morris taught me this is uh pull the perches and pull the water bowl if if she's about three or four days from from the actual laying process that way if she decides not to lay in the in the nest box herself and she decides to lay on the cage floor while well, the eggs are still still going to be good for you as opposed to having them drop from a perch or in a water bowl um bill what do you use for an egg box for your chondros you know, buddy, that's an excellent point because up until last year, um, the species, and Ben will attest to this, you know, uh, with carpets and ball pythons, we don't have to worry about perches. I mean, at least I don't. I don't routinely keep keep uh, perches in with my ball pythons or carpet pythons. So I was very attuned to the fact that uh, last year that my green tree, 
uh, female may indeed, you know, drop eggs from the perch. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I did, after talking to you and a couple other people, uh, I did remove the water bowl at night and uh, you know, I took the perches out. I, I'd have the water bowl uh, in during the day and then I'd take it out at night. Um, but as far as the egg box for me, uh, I just use a plastic uh, tub, like a, a small, it's it's not clear, it's, uh, it's a gray tub that's got a, a lid on it. And I cut a hole in the top of the lid uh, so I could, uh, obviously she could get into the nest box. And then I just used um, uh, sphagnum moss. Uh, there's a substrate in there, kept it moist. And um, indeed, she did go in there and she laid her eggs in the egg box. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah, I've I've kind of had to, I've had females that I've actually had to secure inside an egg box just because... They weren't settling down even. Yeah, sometimes I'll have a female and she'll just does, doesn't want to be in the egg box, but she, maybe she'll crawl under the newspaper and just kind of sit there. And I'm okay if she does that. But I had I've had females that are just completely restless, and uh, I find that sometimes actually physically locking them in the egg box will have them calm down and let them do what they need to do, which is lay their eggs. When, ben, when do would you, you have? When uh, would you do- I'm sorry, buddy. I was just going to ask you, when would you do that? I mean, if you have a, an obvious ovulation, you have post-ovulation shed, uh, then what, maybe five days before you're anticipating ovulation, position, you'll put them in the egg box? Yeah, I'll do that. And the other thing I'll do is, you know, it's not like to lock in there for five complete days um, or even four days or whatever I decide to do. I'll uh, So if I'm going to be around the house, I'll open up the uh, the egg box so that she can come out during the day if need be. And sometimes I'll come out and lay on top of the egg box. And I still have, I'm laying off for a small water bowl so they can get a drink of water. Um, and a lot of times, too, I'll make sure I, I uh, soak the female a couple of times before they lay it. It's a trick that uh, Christian Stewart shared with me a few seasons ago. Was that Christian... Um, routinely soaks his females uh, just to make sure that they're properly hydrated so that uh, they don't have any complications during the laying process. And so like I, I so kind of have emulated that. Soak them, soak them when? Uh, so, so post-ovulation, post-pre-lay shed, uh, maybe a week or so before they're due to lay, I might soak them for three or four hours for two or three days wow. in a row. Um, oh wow! So, hmm. I'm trying okay. to Very avoid interesting. the dreaded. Uh, two things I'm trying to avoid is either a uh, you know egg retention, and also um, I let me knock wood here. Personally, haven't had it happen, but I have seen photos of it. Is prolapsed oviducts. Um, mm. So, and some of the people I've talked to have said that's. You know, they they feel that it's a hydration issue, um, and that the snakes aren't able either to pass the eggs or they adhere to the to the actual oviduct, and and so it's when they actually expel the eggs, the oviduct comes with it. Have you ever seen that happen, Ben? Yeah, with my with that one that uh, you know I've referenced a couple times, um, there was some of her oviduct coming, most of what I was seeing, and I had seen one other time with a ball python. I thought to be able to get the last 
egg out, we were uh, going to have to cut oviduct, but, but now that I had that happen with that durian, for, for what I was actually seeing, I'm pretty sure it was just a clear membrane around the egg, and so each individual egg had its own membrane like that, And uh, but there were so many, that female um, durian, she didn't lay any of the eggs on her own. I think I ended up cutting eight or nine out. And so I really wow. pushed quite a bit of her oviduct down towards her cloaca to uh, cut each each sack and pop them out. So it was, uh, I definitely saw some of her oviduct. Thankfully, it didn't prolapse at all. It all went back in just fine, no problem. But, but it did. By the time I was pushing the last one all the way down, there's some of the you know, part of the oviduct closest to the cloaca had started to come out. So, yeah. Has they been, has she reproduced for you since then? She did not. She ended up getting an infection pretty close after that, or it was probably from that. Um, she died, unfortunately. process is uh, not a benign one that's uh, uh that's for sure every time you do it you put your you know you put your female uh it'll at a certain level of risk yeah yep that's for sure um we're we have about about 90 seconds left of air time but we'll continue into into the recording mode to finish up the interview are you okay with that ben yep that works for me okay so hopefully we don't get cut off. So and if we get cut off, then uh, that'll be the show. But uh, hopefully <laughs> we don't have that problem again, right, Bill? <laughs> it's happened before. Yeah, it happened yeah. with Trooper, and that's the yep. yeah the Trooper phenomena. That's what we call it. Yes. <laughs> um. So, uh, 
we talked a bit about egg deposition. What about we we don't really talk too much about the male. Um I guess maybe because he's just kind of a contributor uh at the lowest common denominator <laughs> of the whole breeding process. Um but what about male physiology? What should we know about the male breeding physiology, Ben? Uh, as far as what's been published, uh, which is mostly in colubrids, um, trying to think if I've, I don't remember any of the literature being about any python species, but there certainly is multiple papers from multiple groups on male you know, kind of body condition, things like that, and uh, and reproductive success. And for males... Where there's combat, it definitely seems to uh, benefit the male to have a larger body size to have a you know good body condition. Uh, so there hmm. seems to be more reproductive success when he's larger, well-fed. Um, in the wild, they certainly haven't I haven't seen them talk about being too big, <laughs> because once again they're they're pretty much all skinny compared to our captives. Um, right. So that's as far as like actual studies. That's all I've ever seen are, are wild colubrids that I can remember okay. uh, in captivity. I have definitely been in several fairly large breeders' facilities, and this once again is mostly ball python, boa, you know, constrictor people working with them. A lot of them seem to you know, leave a ball python male. You know, as long as he's over 500 grams, even if he's seven or eight years old, he's still, you know, under 1,000 grams. Um, they just don't give him very much food, and they still seem to breed. At least some seem to be okay. Uh, the Sutherlands were different. They they just keep feeding males. They had some pretty pretty giant males <laughs> compared to other places that I've been. They just keep feeding them fairly similar to what they do females, and so they breed well for them. Um so in, in captivity, I would imagine, and especially if it's a species where there's no male male combat for, for breeding, it might not be as big of a deal, but certainly they they need energy in the wild to, to cruise around and find and track females and stuff like that. And so I'm sure that some of that, you know, kind of uh, evolutional evolutionary background uh, would carry over into captivity if they're way too skinny or and also on the flip side if they're way too big I would imagine that, that that would hinder things as well and I've heard anecdotal evidence of that I haven't ever seen it myself though okay do males are do they produce sperm at the same levels year round or is it can it be seasonal as well it's definitely seasonal in the once again the studies that I've Red have been with that. I think once again, trying to remember with the water pythons, if that was something that they talked about in Shine's water python papers. I don't remember that, but definitely in bluebirds and vipers, so like rattlesnakes and copperheads, cottonmouths. Uh, there's definitely some some difference in the in the testes. They'll be giant during breeding season. They'll take up quite a bit of the abdominal space. They'll stretch way out, get really big. And then during the off season when they're not breeding, they'll shrink up to be just a little <laughs> a little teeny bit of their abdominal space. So 
mm-hmm. that's actually one thing you can check. Uh, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I know I can't pick it up on ultrasound, but that might be something people that, that look for that a lot might be able to find that and see that. But certainly when you, when you, you know, were studying roadkill, like what I was talking about earlier where I was looking at stomach contents from roadkill specimens, um, when you cut open males like that, you can certainly see difference in size of the testes depending on you know, whether they were in the middle of breeding season or not. And some of them have like two breeding seasons. They'll breed in the fall and then they'll breed again in the spring and they'll still see that those testes will get bigger and then smaller and then they'll get bigger again and then they'll go a few months with no breeding and stay small and then big, small, big, you know, that kind of a thing. It's pretty interesting. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Good to know. I was not aware of that. There's, there seems to be, um, you know, just some talk in the, the the condor community that you know males pretty much will go year round, and um, I've been kind of playing around with my uh, my pairing times just because of my current situation with school. When I'm trying to time everything so that I'm least busy when babies pop out of eggs and um yep. i've been i've been actually kind of surprised because i've always been the traditional uh pairing in the fall eggs you know eggs are hatching in the spring and i've actually done some summertime breedings that have been successful now um some stuff that i've started in the spring and it's ended in the fall so and uh you know so it's been pretty interesting to see i, I thought for sure that a lot of them just wouldn't take because maybe the the males weren't wouldn't be as receptive, but uh, they've you know it's worked out pretty well. And um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I'm just you know just throwing this out there that I don't feel like you know maybe if someone's out there and they don't want to follow the traditional fall to spring breeding season with the chondros that they should give it a try. They 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 would probably have some success with it. I've seen my males have seem to always kind of be interested. Um, you know, occasionally I have run into a male that will uh, hide from the female, and then I just know, well, this guy's not ready, and we'll just have to wait another year or so to see what happens. Um, Bill, have you have you tried breeding outside the, uh, I guess, the fall to spring breeding window? Uh, I I never have, buddy. Uh, a couple different reasons. Uh, one of them is because I think I have the the best success, kind of following their their natural breeding um, tendencies and, you know, a lot of, most of that is, is weather and temperature related, but probably the most, the more important reason is just um, it's more convenient for me to have all of my animals kind of in the same process. In other words, I'm breeding this time of year, I'm incubating eggs this time of year, I'm feeding babies this time of year. So right. uh, answer your question, I, I, I haven't, I've pretty much just been mainstream. Okay. Right. Okay. What about you, Ben? Have you kind of followed the same pairing in the fall and normally eggs in the the? Uh, well, you're using the ultrasound too, so you know yeah, that so kind of pre-ultrasound. And still, for Justin, he does this. He just you know leaves pairs literally year-round. A lot of the time, the only and sometimes in trios or one male and three females if it's a big cage. And we'll just leave them together for eight months of the year, you know. So uh, 
in doing that, I did not see any obvious signs where they ended up going, you know, significantly early or significantly late. Uh, one time I did have a female, the weirdest thing I had happen, I like to say I, I double-clutched a, a female carpet python. <laughs> um, wasn't wasn't like double-clutching a, a colubrid quite, so. Um, but I did have a female go, I don't remember, it was fairly normal time for, so she probably went, you know, late eggs, I don't know, June, July, August, something like that. Maybe she was, she, I guess that she was probably my first one the year before that too, so maybe she laid in March, I don't know. But anyway, the the so that would have been either 07 or 08, I think. Um, so she laid a clutch, March, let's say March, but then she laid again in December. And so I actually got two clutches from one carpet python female in one calendar year. <laughs> wow. And uh, I don't, I mean, there's nothing obvious. It was just because I was, you know, leaving the mail with her all the time, and she just decided to go even earlier that year, and she never did it again. I wow. have gotten several clutches from her, um, probably four or five, and that's the hmm. only time she went that early. Hmm. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Um, now that I have the ultrasound, I pretty much key just off of female follicle size, and there are definitely females that, like right now, I just did a round of ultrasounding. It's probably been two weeks, and out of about 15 females, um, this is carpet pythons, ball pythons, and uh, and uh, blackheads and womas. Um, and Angolans, so I guess there are a few different species there. Um, there are only two females that had follicles over 10 millimeters. The rest are like 6 to 8. And so they're definitely progressing sooner than than the others and potentially would, would go earlier with a male present, you know, if, if like you're talking about introducing earlier than you normally would. Uh, those two would probably be conducive to that. One of those females last year, she was the first one to progress last year as well. So that was kind of interesting, too. She's one of the two that's progressing early this year. But, but yeah, I, I'd say, you know, as far as just leaving them together, and Justin and I, our experience, they still kind of go similar time each year, and it's usually the same laying eggs, March to to July, somewhere in there. Okay. Now, one thing I've noticed is that uh, with uh, chondro eggs, is that I've pretty much noticed if my female's laying eggs, um, a majority of the times, if the egg is outside of the coils of the female, usually those those eggs are slugs, and you've actually done a little bit of research with that, Ben. What what did you find with it? Yeah, so with the that large data set from the Sutherlands, once again with ball python breeding, um, what what I was able to do with such a large sample size was to focus in on clutches. There are two different things that I focused on. One was females that laid an egg 
just like one or maybe two eggs early or slugs. Sometimes they were slugs um, mm -hmm. where they caught that, recorded this female laid this day, and then the next day she laid the rest of the clutch, that kind of a thing, which I've only had happen one time that I can think of. Um, but it is something that you see every now and again. And then also we're able to focus in on the clutches where a female kicks one or more eggs outside of her coils and coils the rest. And with that kind of a data set, I was able to have enough numbers where I could take those two clutches, those types of clutches, the data from them, the size of the female, the size of the clutch, how many eggs, all of those details. I was able to look and see if there are any obvious differences between those females or the size of that clutch or whatever um, compared to all the other clutches that did not have either an early laying or an egg kicked out. And what we're able yeah. to see when, when the females pushed an egg outside of the coils, we were able to see that the relative clutch mass, so if you take the the mass of the female, so you take the mass of the eggs, you weigh the eggs, then you take the, the mass of the female after laying and divide that. Um, so you divide egg mass by female body weight. Um, am I remembering that right? I think that's right. Relative clutch mass. Yeah, that's got to be what it is. Anyway, so you do that. So you're basically getting a measurement of how big the clutch is compared to the size of the female. And what we're able to see is in the clutches where the female kicked an egg out, uh, her relative clutch mass was higher than the average of all the clutches where an egg got kicked out was higher than the average for all the other clutches where they didn't kick an egg out. And so that was evidence that goes along with uh, another study Rick Shine was a part of uh, where they experimentally added or took away eggs from ball python females. They're wild females that were laying eggs in a, in a, like a facility where they had gone and collected these wild ball python females and kept them there to hatch eggs and sell babies and stuff. They were able to go in and do these experiments, which is really cool. Um, but anyway, when they would experimentally add eggs to females' clutches, they saw a decrease in, in hatch rate and stuff like that. And so there seems to be uh, evidence from our, our study as well that if the size of the clutch is large enough that the female can't effectively incubate it, so it can't properly wrap all the way around it and control humidity and temperature like she should, there's some natural, you know, how how she senses that, I don't know, but for whatever reason, if that clutch, that relative clutch mass is, is really high, then that, they're more likely to kick an egg out than if it's normal or low relative clutch mass, which is pretty interesting. And it was similar with the female laying an egg early. Um, there was a small difference between this, what was statistically significant, um, and I don't remember the, the difference now, but it was a similar story with both laying an egg early or a slug early and kicking an egg out. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is, but it would make we, you it would make you imperatively think then if you were artificially incubating, then that egg that was kicked out should have a pretty close to normal um hatch rate. And at least the uh the eggs that I've incubated that have been kicked out, some do and some don't, but it certainly isn't as high as the eggs that have been uh, not kicked out. 
Yep. Right. So we, like, we were able to measure that as well. And so, well, they had like a, I don't know, 90 plus percent hatch rate for for all the other eggs. Um, for the eggs that were kicked out, the hatch rate was 40%. So it does mm. seem like the females have some way of knowing when an egg is not good. And mm-hmm. they prefer- preferentially kick out bag- bad eggs before they'll kick out a good egg because that yeah. hatch rate was so different. But, yeah, it's definitely worth, and I think most breeders would always, any eggs you get, you're going to put in the incubator until they smell horrible, but... Yeah, you definitely want to still incubate those eggs. You still have a chance of getting healthy babies out of those. Yeah, yeah, fifty fifty percent chance of just about. Yep. Nice. Yeah. That's that's nice. cool. They can do that. That that's cool that they know or seem to know which one to kick out. Yep, definite, definite. Bill, when you uh, did your chondro eggs last year, how did you incubate them? Did you do uh, maternal? Did you do artificial? I did uh, artificial uh, incubation, and I incubated them exactly how I I did my carpet eggs, uh, 87, you know, 87 to 88 degrees. Uh, I did, I never separate my carpet eggs. I just, they, they get laid in bulk, and I just take the big bulk and, same with my ball right. python eggs. I just put them in a, you know, a, I use a non-substrate uh, method, just water on top of a diffuse light grate and uh, incubate the uh, the eggs in mass. I did separate the chondro eggs. I didn't candle them. I was so nervous, you know, <laughs> my first clutch. I just wanted okay. to immediately just get, just get them out and get them in the incubator and, and just, you know, close my eyes and pray. So I, I didn't weigh them, I didn't candle them, I just uh, separated them um, and uh, put them in. And uh, it was a small clutch. I had seven seven eggs. Uh, uh, six of the seven uh, went on to produce uh, or, or or have live babies. One of the uh, one of the eggs, one of the babies died in the egg. Um, but yeah, that's how I did it. Nice, nice. Gotcha. Okay. How about you? I mean, is that pretty pretty standard for you? For your, uh, uh, have you ever done a maternal incubation, buddy? Never. <laughs> yeah, control um, issue. It's you know, scary. It is, and I, you know, I've, I've, you do what you know, if that makes sense to you, and you, if you if you're doing something and it kind of works, why why change? Um, you know, so when I came of age with breeding pythons, um, there's you know. The the key had been figured out that hey if you did if you incubated them artificially this way they'll hatch so that was already solved um, so you know I just for years I just put python eggs on vermiculite put them in an incubator and marked a little date on my calendar and I'd start watching the eggs around that time and babies would hatch and um, when I, when I did chondros for the first time. You know, I was all nervous about using the no substrate method. I'd never used it before. Uh, my friend Tim Morris is walking me through it, and he's like, "He's like, hey man, you know, if you can hatch out half of the eggs that you get, you're doing great." And <laughs> I was thinking, "Wow, that's uh, that's kind of a low bar." I thought I was thinking, you know, and he was saying, you know, he had 
hit the incubator he was using at the time. Every time he did no substrate, it just he always lost some eggs just to desiccation. And and so I I did the no substrate method, and uh, about two or three weeks from before they were due to hatch, the eggs started denting in, which freaked me out because I've never seen that before with python eggs on vermiculite. That never happened. So I kind of yeah. freaked out a bit and was like, oh, gosh, these things are going to desiccate and die just like Tim had predicted and um, mixed up some vermiculite and put them on vermiculite for the for the remainder of the incubation time. They pumped back up and they all hatched, and I was happy. And then the... Uh, the next clutch, you know, everyone was like, oh, well, no, they're supposed to do that. They need to dent in. Um, so the next clutch, I let it go, and it all turned out fine. And, you know, so I use the no-substrate method. I do separate the eggs. Um, maybe one day I'll try maternal incubation. I'm not sure. I had a, I have a friend of mine who lives close by to me. In 2008 and 2007, he bought uh, a he bought a female first and then he bought a male for me the following year and he just bred them last year and he does carpets and he's all about maternal incubation and so he he paired the animals this this past breeding season for the first time he got a clutch of eggs and uh he let the female maternally incubate and he sent me a uh, text message and said hey the the eggs have about a week to go but the female crawled off the eggs and he showed me a picture of the female. I'm like, you know, that female's going to be dead within like a day or two unless you take her to the vet. And oh, wow. So she she perished. And I was like, what are you doing with the eggs? Like, well, I'm just, they're still in the egg box where the female was incubating. I'm like, you didn't put them in the incubator? He's like, no. I was like, okay. He's like, why? I was like, I don't think they're going to hatch. And he's like, oh, well, I had, I've had, you know, carpet pythons climb off the eggs. And then a couple of days later, the eggs hatched, and everything is fine. And needless to say, nothing hatched. Yeah. And he was a week away. And, yeah. you know, of course, he's devastated. He lost a clutch. He lost a female that had been growing up for close to six years. And uh, those are the stories that make me not want to do maternal incubation. <laughs> <laughs> he, he probably didn't even yeah. have an incubator. He didn't. And yeah. the sad part is he's, like, literally 20 minutes away, and... You know, I was like, you know, we could, you know, you can bring them here if you want to. He's like, no, nah, they're going to be fine. So, mm-hmm. and they weren't. So, mm. yeah, so yeah, I do. <laughs> no, he won't. The agony of defeat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but that's what I do. I do the no substrate. Ben, do you uh, do you do no substrate or do vermiculite or something else? I've I've tried pretty much every way I've seen people do it. One year I put them in a ceramic bowl with a wet paper towel over the top of them. I've done no substrate. I've done vermiculite. I've done vermiculite perlite mix. Um, I've done all kinds of different stuff, and, I mean, it seems to all work pretty well. What I don't like is, for me personally, probably because of my laziness, um, I don't like having to mess with standing water. And so I've, just because if I leave it in there too long or if I decide I want to put another clutch in, like what I'll do a lot of the time with vermiculite or vermiculite perlite mix, if I have another female that's about to lay eggs, I'll pull the eggs out, 
before they hatch, and I'll put them into like a what I, how I would set up a hatchling, so they still have you know 80 degree, 85 degree temp in there for like the last week or three or four days or whatever. Um, so they'll actually hatch out in a cage in a hatchling rack, um, and then I'll just kind of use that same substrate to incubate another clutch. I'll make sure I'll add water if needed, stuff like that, make sure it's good. But, but yeah, if you do that with the no substrate method, it gets really funky <laughs> and gross. Right. And so, right. so just because of my, my laziness, how I do things, I am just back to where I started using vermiculite or vermiculite perlite mix. And I don't think it really matters too much, you know, whether you do the mix or not, but it's a, a little bit less stuff stuck to your hands and to the hatchlings when they hatch out when you use a mix and straight vermiculite. But it, it seems like pretty much any of those work just fine. Um, one other method that I just saw that I thought was pretty interesting, it's it's not really feasible for, for most people, but one of the big ball python breeders had put up uh, a video where he put a swamp cooler in his egg incubation room and if you know how swamp coolers work, if they don't have access to, you know, air, full, new air, basically if you're using a swamp cooler to cool your house, you have to open windows, and that's how you get the, the flow to be able to cool things down. It's a lot different than AC. But anyway, he just has it enclosed in the room, so basically it's like a huge um, a huge humidifier. <laughs> and so, Wow. What he's doing is he's just taking the eggs and literally putting them inside, just setting the clutch inside of a Tupperware container with absolutely nothing in it. Talk about no substrate. It's real, for real, so no substrate. He just sets yeah, it yeah. in a Tupperware container on the shelf, and the whole room is like, you know, 95% humidity or whatever, and it's the right temperature, and he's hatching out clutches that way. So, hmm. Wow. So he turns the nice. room, the entire room's the incubator. Yeah, humidity and everything. Most people don't have the humidity that high. But, yeah, literally, he could even just set a clutch on the floor, and <laughs> most likely it would right. be just fine. You did uh, bring up a good point. You did bring up a good point, Ben, about, um, and especially, uh, like, I do use the, the no-substrate method. Once that clutch pips, whether it's uh, green trees or carpets or balls, once they pip, I take it. I take the clutch out of there, and like you do, I'll set it up in a separate tub, still inside the incubator, but I don't want them crawling out of the egg and getting into the grate or getting down into the into the water. So, yeah, once uh, once those eggs pip, you got you have to take them out of your incubation box, put them in a separate box, still inside the incubator until they uh, emerge from the egg. Yeah. That's for sure. That always worried me with the no substrate method too. I always had nightmares i'd walk in and there'd be a, a dead baby underneath the grate <laughs> yep yep I've, I've certainly missed it uh in carpets where they've pipped and have come all the way out of the egg uh, I, I haven't lost a baby to that um uh, but i could see i could see where it could happen yeah very good we've run 30 minutes over buddy Okay. Yeah, I think this is a, a good good place to stop. All right, Ben. So thank you for spending the evening with us. It's been 
enjoyable and I've learned some things and hopefully our listeners will be able to uh, pair some green tree pythons this year for the first time and tell us about all their eggs are hatching in the spring. Right, Bill? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear all the stories. And uh, Ben, again, uh, following Buddy, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed it. And I definitely, not that I've kept them very much, but the times I have had green trees at my place, it's been definitely a cool species, really fun to look at. And tell you what, even if you're not breeding them, if you're vending at shows, if you've got one on display, especially if you can pass it around and let people hold it, it definitely brings people to your table that otherwise wouldn't come. <laughs> they're, they're a cool species that a lot of people that aren't necessarily, you know, keeping and breeding pythons, if I have people come visit, I would always open up the 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 piebald ball python and then the green tree python are two that I would pretty much always open to show people and they think they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Yep, definitely, definitely. But yeah, thanks a lot right. for having me on. I've enjoyed it. All right, Ben. Ben, thanks so much. We'll maybe have to have you back and talk about some other things. Maybe we could do a you could talk uh, genetics or something with us. Sounds good. All right, Ben. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. And, uh, buddy, I guess uh, we already have our next uh, show scheduled. Is that right? Yes. Yes, we do. That's coming up on December 28th, and it'll be another Sunday night. And that is going to be with Greg Schroeder, which people probably are asking, who is Greg Schroeder? Uh, Well, Greg actually uh, runs and owns and maintains uh, Morelia Viridis Forum. And so we're going to talk to Greg about how he keeps chondros because he does it a little bit differently. And he is going to tell us how he likes to do things with chondros. And he's going to also, we're going to talk uh, about the MVF. And maybe we're, we'll be able to actually fire up the chat room on MVF and have a good old-fashioned MVF chat, and maybe we can bring up some controversial issues or not. And uh, <laughs> you you know of uh, a couple of people that are going to join us for that, right, right, Bill? Absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, being able to, uh, to, to really to, to push and to let people that are listening to the show know how important the MVF is. It's, um, you know... Uh, where anybody that's anybody that knows anything about chondros is a member of it, and there's uh, literally decades of experience uh, on that site. And uh, Greg is very gracious to to host that and finance it and keep it going and keep it clean. And it's it is the one resource where you know one of the best things about the chondro community is it really polices itself. And, um, you know, it's uh, in large part because of the MVF. So I wanted yep, to, to say that. And also the the individuals that you're talking about are going to be um, uh, uh, the two guys that have uh, spearheaded the, um, uh, I guess it's called the uh, the basic husbandry guide section that is on the MVF. And that's Matt Morris and David Newman. And they've taken a lot of time and put a lot of effort into putting together uh, quite a few sections now, and it's continually uh, growing, uh, just about the basics of uh, obtaining a green tree python uh, and keeping a green tree python. 
And uh, obviously, uh, we all recommend Greg Maxwell's book, The Complete or The More Complete Chondro. Um, and this is a great supplement to that. Um, or somebody that's uh, perhaps uh, doesn't have their first chondro and they want some information, this would be a great resource to go to first. Uh, read that, and uh, it'll prepare you to, to, to potentially have your first uh, green tree. So really looking forward to bringing those three gentlemen on the show next month. And the great thing about it is it costs you nothing to go over there and read Zero. this stuff. Zero. Nothing. And um, you don't even have to be a member, and you can you have access to all this stuff. That's how that's how fanatic these guys are about making sure you're ready for your first chondro. Um, I will say this about the MVF. It's been around for almost 12 years. Uh, I think you can go back almost to the beginning to pretty much read every post that's been on there, which I know we live in the world of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, but one of the downfalls of, of those media outlets is, um, something that's relevant today, you can't find tomorrow if you want to reference it. It's, it goes, I don't know where it goes, but it goes somewhere, yeah. and I can't seem to find it unless someone, you know, of course I'm an old guy, so maybe uh, just not technically, uh, don't have the savvy to to maneuver through Facebook like some of the younger folks out there, but that's been my experience. Yeah. What about you, Bill? No, absolutely. That's not, I mean, that that's not the case, and, and that is the one um that's the one downside about Facebook is that it's not the information is not well categorized or archived um, for you to go back to look over. You know, it's it, unless you know the history, you're you're doomed to repeat your failures. And uh, information that is archived, like it is on the NVF, uh, it's invaluable, and it's it is certainly the one thing that Facebook uh, cannot offer us. Agreed. All right. Um, but, okay, let's call Greg up and start the show now. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. It's been fun. Ben, thank you. Rico, rest in peace, man. Yep, absolutely. See you on the other side. All right, bo- All right, boys. It's been fun. Ben, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to, to hang with us. And uh, we'll uh, see every. Everyone can hear us at the next episode. Have a good night, guys. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.